You're listening to the Beyond the States podcast with Jen Vimont. Did you know that you can go to Europe and get your entire degree taught in English for less than one year of tuition at many American schools? Jen will take you on a deep dive into the many benefits and options around English-taught higher education in Europe, helping to make the possibility less foreign. So today, a little bit later on the episode, we're going to talk to Colleen Bordeaux. She's a senior manager at Deloitte Consulting in Los Angeles. We did this recording a while back, and I hadn't aired it yet because there were some audio issues that we had to deal with. Actually, funny, uh, we edited this part out, but right in the middle of our interview, Colleen's husband's cooking set off the fire alarm in the kitchen. She rolled with it like a pro, and she called me back from outside until he got it under control. Anyhow, because the interview was a while back, I listened to it again, and here's what struck me. There's such a common message from almost all of the experts we've heard from this season. Along with Colleen, they're all saying that there are certain qualities, capabilities, skills, whatever you want to call them, that are needed for success and that aren't being cultivated by traditional education in the U.S. In fact, in some cases, the education system in the U.S. actively discourages the cultivation of the qualities. All of these experts have talked about the important qualities that develop through experiencing failure, for instance. This is something that is unheard of through high school. In order to play the U.S. admissions game, students are led to believe that there can be no failure. And as we learned in the episode with William Dershowitz, this mindset carries over into college as well. We've also learned that students need to get out of their comfort zone. Colleen puts it well. She, she talks about putting yourself in situations where you don't have the answers and where there isn't a rule book. And we've talked about the need for students to be able to demonstrate that they're able to effectively communicate and work with people from all different backgrounds and perspectives. I really don't know how employers are teaching these skills. I mean, I'm sure there's some really well-researched and thought out, you know, curriculum and such. But how do you teach empathy to young adults? How do you teach them to get out of their comfort zone? I can think of a couple of, of ways that might help for a few of these. I mean, Colleen talks about how her job as a weight person helped with a lot of these skills. Having waitressed myself in college, I completely agree with her on this one. We've had other guests talk about how jobs like my this job my son had at a grocery store are also great for many of these skills. Jobs where you're working alongside and also serving people who have different backgrounds, different goals, different education than you do. We have a masterclass that includes a lesson about learning what skills you need to develop that are going to help you when you're living abroad. Now, I grew up in Chicago in the city where I was taking the number six Jeffrey Express bus with friends, even in elementary school. I understand, of course, that things are a little different now and that many of our students don't live in a place that's conducive to public transportation. So one suggestion I sometimes make is for the students and the parents, if needed, to take a trip to a nearby city and have the student figure out on their own how they're going to get from point A to point B on public transportation. And the parents aren't able to make any suggestions or, or help. So what does this teach? It teaches navigating, literally and figuratively, unfamiliar circumstances. It also often teaches failure. I mean, when we travel, my husband still makes the mistake of getting on the platform that's going on the wrong way often. And if they do fail, it teaches them that it's not the end of the world. They simply get off the train when they realize they made a mistake and, and figure out how to rectify. If they fully go through the, this exercise, the lessons can really be applied to other areas of life. However, more often than not, the parents don't let them fail to that point. Well-meaning suggestions to, you know, check the sign to determine what platform they want to be on 
and, and other, again, well-meaning suggestions interfere with the failure experience. I've been guilty of this in my, my own life, as you all know. But now that Sam's in Europe, there are a number of failures that I couldn't prevent him from experiencing if I tried. But now in year three, I see the incredible growth he's made and the lessons he's learned. It was certainly painful as a parent to watch him learn those lessons and stressful, but I've never seen him in a better place than he is now. Though I know college in Europe is not the route for everyone, I do truly believe that it's an incredible way to ensure that our kids develop these crucial skills while having these life-changing experiences. Let's take a quick break and see what Colleen has to tell us. I'm Tati, I'm from Atlanta, and I'm in my third year of study at Hans University in the Netherlands, and I found my university through my Beyond the States membership. I'd been interested in studying in Europe before I joined Beyond the States, but the research my mom and I did on our own often resulted in misinformation or information that didn't apply to me as a native English speaker from an American high school. Nobody at my high school knew how to advise me either. With the help of the BTS database and membership resources, I was able to explore my different options and get advice from Jen about admission strategies. Membership includes more these days than when I was a member. The private member Facebook group includes students and families at all stages of the process. When students go to Europe, we and our parents can stay in the group. Not only does this mean we can answer questions from members who are exploring, but we can get information and resources during our study. My mom is still in the group and has found it helpful, especially connecting with other parents during the height of COVID. If you're interested in studying Europe, I suggest that you join Beyond the States for at least a month. I don't think you'll regret it at all. Check the show notes for details and a link or visit the services page at beyondthestates.com. Today, I am talking to Colleen Bordeaux. She's a senior manager at Deloitte Consulting in Los Angeles, where she helps organizations cultivate positive human experiences in the context of their workforce and customer engagement. She speaks and writes on the subject of human potential in the workplace, employability, the value of soft skills, and the future of work. She's also the founder and co-leader of a startup called Growth Incorporated that advocates for and supports professional women as leaders in their fields. Wow, that's a lot. Thanks so much for being here today, Colleen. Thanks for having me. So I was reading a Deloitte paper that you contributed to, and I thought it was just fascinating. It was the Closing the Employability Skills Gap paper. And there's some terms that are used around this topic in general that I think a lot of us who, like myself, are older Gen X or like young boomers don't really understand. So I'm finally wrapping my brain around a number of them, but came across a term I was less familiar with. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the fourth industrial revolution means and how it impacts college-age students. Yeah, absolutely. So the fourth industrial revolution is a term that researchers and economists have given to the rapidly accelerating pace of change to technology and how it's impacting the way we work and the way that we live and the way that we interact as human beings. And to bring that to life for you, in all of human history, we have been accustomed to linear change, which means that we make an advancement, we learn from that advancement, apply what we learn, and then um, come up with something new. And it's a slower pace of change than what we are in right now, which is called exponential change, which means that we are, um, we are on an exponential growth curve. And if you feel like the world is changing faster than ever before, that's because it actually is. And the analogy that I heard is that if you um, are kind of taking linear steps, if you take kind of linear steps across um, a football field, you know, like that will get you 
uh, take you, you know, maybe an hour. Take, I think it was like th- three linear steps, 30 linear steps. And if you take 30 exponential steps, you'll like go around the world like multiple times. Oh, wow. And so it's this idea that, you know, well, the world is changing around as faster and faster than it ever has, but our human nature is staying the same. And I think we're all feeling um, this sense of overwhelm with how quickly our world is changing and and trying to kind of bring it back to us as individuals and what do we do with all of this and how do we set ourselves up to survive and thrive as we move forward. Interesting, because I, I think that the workforce wasn't that different from my parents from when I went to college, but I do think it's so different for my kids than when I was in college. There was a great um, David Sedaris quote. I wish I had it in front of me. It's hysterical where he talks about how he used to eavesdrop on people and like he'd know what they were talking about. And now when they're talking about their professions, he just has no idea what he's even eavesdropping on. And that's what I feel like too. Like there's just so much difference and I'm not that old. Um, So it's good to know that that's not my imagination. Yeah, definitely not. And that's the um, the change in jobs. I know it's something that we, as we were emailing, kind of really thinking about. I think one of the biggest impacts on work when it relates to this rapid pace of change to technology is that technology is taking on cognitive capabilities that we are accustomed to paying humans to do in the workplace. And it's estimated that up to 40% of the jobs we know and work today um, have the potential to be automated and done by technology. And there's millions of new jobs that are being created that people have never done before. And so it's calling on us to really think differently about what is the value we bring as human beings and what are the what are the skills and capabilities we've got as humans that um, can endure and help us to adapt and um, continue to add value in the workplace, in the workforce, um, even as technology um, kind of accelerates its ability to, um, to help us get work done. Interesting. So in a very simplistic term, because that's how I think about technology, that's the only way I can deal with technology. I guess what I'm thinking about are like bots, you know, when I'm a customer service bot as opposed to a person. So what could a person do that this bot couldn't is is sort of what we're talking about in very simplistic yeah, basic level. <laughs> that's 100% right. And I think, oh, sorry, one, one more thing to that when it comes what? to like um, AI technology and um robotic process engineering and a lot of the like next-gen technologies that um, are already available and already kind of doing work that we're used to paying humans to do. So a lot of the conversation around what technology can do is what is repetitive and rule-based work that is easy to program versus work that requires you to connect dots across functions and um, read nuance and context that technology is less able to do. So, you know, fields like finance are, are really well-primed to be automated because it's repetitive and rule-based versus some of the other kind of avenues that require us to influence behavior and change how people think are are less likely to be, you know, impacted by technology. So that kind of ties into one of the things that the paper also said, which was that many organizations are reevaluating their talent profile. So can you tell me a little bit about what they're looking for now that's different than what they used to be looking for? Absolutely. So there's always going to be those kind of hard skills that you need to get the job done. And as I mentioned, that there's um, lots of new jobs coming that we um, aren't accustomed to doing. And a big, um, a big example of kind of hard skill that many of our clients and, and organizations are looking at is this concept of digital fluency and data fluency. And, um, and data fluency is a great example, because I think 
we think about data as the ability to to get data and to create reports, but how do you actually derive insights from multiple different data sets and do it in a way that allows organizations to to take more meaningful action? And digital fluency is, you know, the ability to use digital tools and platforms and as um, as new um, tools come on the scene, how do we use that to get do- work done better and more effectively and more efficiently um, and, and also operate in digital virtual environments in ways that get work done in, um, in really effective ways. And then there's a second kind of bucket of skills that have been less of a focus in learning and development programs and in organizational kind of learning programs, but they're, um, they're what we traditionally call social and emotional skills. And I mentioned that there's a lot of um, technology trends driving the future of work, um, but there's other trends happening kind of in conjunction with technology. And, and one example is the rise of diversity in the workplace. And this is both driven by generational diversity. We, we now have more than four generations in the workforce at the same time with widely different preferences, norms, behaviors, and ways of working. Um, we also, because of technology, have the ability to work cross-border, cross-culture, and this need for, um, for engaging with people who, who don't look or act or sound like you um, is becoming table stakes to um, getting work done. And then I think there's a couple of additional trends too that are that are really focused on kind of this um, move away from the three-part life series where you've got education, career, and retirement to the 100-year life and the um, lifelong learning that requires you to sustain uh, sustain yourself over the course of your lifetime. And so the skills that are needed in that environment are really things like empathy, creativity, problem solving, cultural fluency. And, and they're skills that um, in many ways kind of um, are our innate human capabilities. We just have to think about developing and incentivizing them in much different ways than we've had to think about before in the workforce. Interesting. I want to go to that, that kind of cross-cultural communication piece that you were talking about. Because I think a lot of people might think that that is something that they could do and maybe it's not. I mean, I, I lived in Portugal for a couple of years and I would have considered myself very good at cross-cultural communication. And, and there were absolutely times there was a meeting I had with somebody in Estonia where I was sure that she just thought I was an idiot. But it was more just, you know, and I later found out, you know, she we enjoyed each other a lot and we were friendly. And it was more just me not knowing culturally you know, the, the, the communication norms. Can you give me an example about how that might look in the workforce, how it might look to need that, that cross-cultural communication skill or how it might be kind of messed up by somebody who's lacking those skills? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think the first piece to this is like, we have, um, so many organizations that are standing up functions that, you know, um, get work done in a different country, like in Poland or in India, and recognizing that um, if you're leading a team that is based in multiple different geographies and multiple different countries, lacking cultural fluency would be to come in with the expectation that the way work will get done, the way that you manage meetings, the way that you you manage a team is going to be consistent with the way that you've always done it. Mm. And so um, in that instance, that would be, you know, potentially leading to really negative experiences of members of your team who feel potentially excluded from the conversation because you're not 
making space to listen and understand where they're coming from or potentially not um, creating flexibility to accommodate different time zones or different holidays and personal needs. And that would obviously drive people out the door of your company and create kind of um, negative work outcomes versus coming in and recognizing that I have a really diverse makeup to my team. And rather than diving in with assumptions and an old way of doing things, creating the space to really meet with the team and individual members of the team to get to know them, really listen and understand um, expectations and, um, and preferences, and then own the, own the issue that we have um, a lot of different factors to consider here to make this a really positive experience for everyone and how do we create more opportunities to connect on human levels so that we're able to listen and empathize and learn from one another and um, and build our culture to get work done and build trust so we can get work done in, in really effective ways. That's a really high level example, but that's kind of the, uh, I think, ultimate so what behind it. No, I, I think it's a really good concrete example too. It's, it's understandable. <laughs> Excellent. So the other thing I was reading is it was, um, the people were saying that data indicates a continued massive deficit deficit of social and emotional capabilities in today's workforce. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on why that is. Yeah. So at the highest level, I think um, we haven't really needed to focus as much on social and emotional capabilities because the way that work got done, what workplaces and workforces looked like was, was much different. And, um, and organizations in many ways operated with what um, what I like to call a logic bias, meaning we're focused really explicitly on bottom line impacts and work outcomes at the expense of really understanding some of the kind of emotional data and emotional realities of the experience our human stakeholders are having as they interact with our organization. And organizations had to get smart on that from a customer experience perspective decades ago, right? So if you, um, if you did not consider the emotional impact of the interaction the customer was having with your organization, you would fail to build trust in that customer and fail to build feelings of loyalty in that customer that would translate into repeat, repeat purchases. So really going deep on how does this customer feel? What's driving that feeling? How do we influence that to be more positive? The core skill to doing that was empathy, right? Putting the customer, that human at the center, and really um, using a lot of those skills to deeply understand that emotional sentiment data, and then combining it with some of the more traditional data sets around, like, how do we reimagine this customer journey and some of these interactions that builds that customer trust and loyalty and translates into repeated purchases and, and do it in a way that also kind of works for our operating model and our strategy. So this is not a new concept, but the world has changed so much that it's calling on us to do that now for workers. Um, And it's both driven by kind of all of those trends we talked about earlier, but also this subtle shift in power between workers and their organizations where um, the experience a worker has can make it on an open source platform that anybody can check. And workers have arguably just as much, if not more, power to impact organizational brand and, and market performance as their customers. And so bringing this, uh, this set of kind of social and emotional capabilities front and center is 
table stakes to doing kind of applying that same logic to creating more positive worker experiences, improving human connection and culture, and making um, organizations places that workers not only want to work, but are willing to tell their friends and their families and their social feeds um, about their experiences and, and recommend those places to work. Um, so at, at the highest level, I think that that's kind of the, the uh, shift. And, you know, it's becoming an increasing focus in this great resignation world so many of our organizations are struggling with. So it sounds like um, companies are putting a lot of money and resources into training their employees around this. So are they also looking for candidates who already have a number of these skills? Yeah, I'm sure you've heard the term kind of leader leader at every level. And I think some of the core leadership um, capability uh, focus, which looks, I think, more at formal definitions of leaders, emphasizes social and emotional capabilities um, almost above everything else. And so it's translating kind of what's worked in the leadership development space kind of across the board. And I think um, in the hiring process, I would say every organization is already screening for these skills and better understanding your ability to um, work with others, to influence others, to communicate, to solve problems, um, to be able to innovate and adapt as your role changes around you. And I think the ability to get those types of skills and apply them and speak to them so that you are positioning yourself um, better in an interview is, is super important. And then also once you are kind of on the job, I think so much of organizational learning and development programs are kind of shifting and pivoting towards that um, leading, leading at all levels and how do you build and develop those social and emotional capabilities at much earlier stages in your career um, because you, you frankly, you do have to work in situations where you might be required to lead across um, and above you and, and need the same exact set of skills that, um, you know, a more traditional leader in your organization might have. Um, our listeners hear me talk at nauseam about how living outside of your home country can really lead to a lot of these social and emotional capabilities. We're talking about the soft skill development, you know, learning how to navigate unfamiliar circumstances, being adaptable, working in groups with people with completely different perspectives and backgrounds. Uh, are there other life experiences or situations you can think of that can lead to this soft skill development before you enter? Well, I mean, many of them are in the workforce in some way, shape, or form, but until you kind of enter your career life. A hundred percent, yes. I think that traditional education um, really focuses on being perfect, right? What are the specific steps, the box I play in, and how do I get an A and advance to the next level? And so I think what traditional education misses is getting you out of your comfort zone, getting you it to a place where you're having to take risks and, and leaps of faith and try things and fail and have to learn when you do fail, how do you adjust and use that as data to get you where you're going instead of looking at it as something that is a signal to stop or, um, or slow down. And I think um, figuring out how do I continue to make myself uncomfortable, put myself in situations where I don't have all of the answers. There's not necessarily a rule book or a path to follow. 
And I have to rely on a different way of thinking and operating in order to um, to move forward and, and to kind of learn and, and get, get where I'm going. And that could be as simple as, you know, starting a side hustle and really developing kind of a different orientation towards what success looks like. I have to deeply understand kind of my customer and what their needs are. If they run into issues, I have to learn how to address them. It could be taking a job that looks a lot different than a really structured internship and gets you in an environment where you're working with people that you maybe don't necessarily um, get to interact with uh, day-to-day in your community and, and puts you in a position where you have to check some of your own assumptions and biases. So I think that like the biggest thing is just getting out of, the, getting out of your box and, um, and, and putting yourself in situations that stretch you and make you uncomfortable is probably one of the best ways to, uh, to, to grow this set of capabilities. You were you're talking about that. And I was thinking I recently was talking to an author who wrote about the American admissions process and how kids are really basically told through high school, here is the exact path you take. Here are all the boxes you need to check. And you really can't make any mistakes because you have to be the best in all these different areas. And how when they get to college, they're sort of programmed that way to to avoid risks because you can't make mistakes. So I like the idea you were talking about. Well, what I like is the idea of going to Europe so you can bypass all of that. But I like the idea you were talking about of of a side hustle. You know, you can do a risk that doesn't have to do with your academics if you're if you're uh, frightened by doing that. You know, you can take these risks in other areas of your life to gain those skills as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I was also thinking my, my son, because he wasn't doing the U.S. system through high school, he worked at a grocery store. And I think a lot of that, you know, it was, you know, again, it helped him. He was working cross-generationally or with different people with different backgrounds and reporting to people with different backgrounds. And I think it just was such a learning experience um, having that kind of experience as well. Absolutely. I would say one of the most foundational um, learning experience I had was being a waiter in college. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> recognizing human nature and how people treat somebody who they feel is beneath them and how you kind of um, develop a t- totally different way of thinking and um, and empathizing with people when uh, you've kind of seen some of that firsthand from uh, working alongside people who maybe you don't normally get to interact with. So 100% agree with that. I completely agree. I think that I've had a lot of jobs throughout my career, and I think that waitressing was not only the hardest, but also one that I learned so much about myself and about the world through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you also learn that you never want to have to clean out that grease hood again if you can avoid it. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> you get the job of hearing the ketchups me. instead of that. <laughs> exactly. And also about the value of hard work and this idea that like, you're not above um, or below anybody else that like learning how to work hard and um, and how to, you know, get good at your job and add value to your, your end customer, whoever that person might be the same, it's the same set of skills and, and really requires you to listen and empathize and problem solve and, you know, learning how to do that in a service oriented industry, I think is, um, is really great education. I totally agree. Totally agree. So I see, you know, I visit a lot of schools in Europe and I visit business schools as well. And I, you know, they always have like the plaques of who their big recruiters are. And I see Deloitte as an active recruiter at many of these these business schools in Europe. 
And I'd like to talk about this a little bit because so many people falsely believe that studying outside of one's home country was going to put them at a disadvantage um, when they're interviewing or looking for a job. Do you have any thoughts on that? So I do. I mean, I think that there's uh, a lot of different ways to think about how you position yourself for a job. There are certainly companies, and Deloitte is one, right, that have lists of target schools that they recruit from, which is one avenue to get a job at a company um, that you kind of work or are educated at that school and you um, navigate through that school's recruiting relationship with an organization. Um, but that's one of many possible ways to build your career and, and get employment opportunities. And I think when you consider all of the choices and options you've got and how to best position yourself for success, I think it has to come back to like, what matters to me? What do I really value? And how do I lead with that in the choices I make now and how I educate myself and get a well-rounded, a well-rounded exposure to this world so that when I'm ready to start making choices, um, interviewing for jobs that I have a lot of great life experience to draw on and I'm really well positioning myself for what organizations are looking for. And I think that's the most important part. And I think, you know, from the kind of recruiting that I've been involved in, yes, um, a lot of the entry-level jobs at Deloitte that are coming through, uh, you know, university relationships, the initial contact might come with the relationship, but the bigger kind of uh, deciding factor is the, frankly, like character experiences, um, you know, courage and, and core, core uh, skills that student um, brings to the table. And I think also with the rate of change to jobs, I think the average tenure on a job is 18 months and shrinking, that um, most companies, the majority of people that are coming into their ranks are, they've got experience elsewhere. They're not coming through a university. Um, they're coming from wide varieties of different fields and experiences. And um, that's viewed as such a value because um, when you're thinking about innovating, you've got to be able to break out of your silos and, and look at things differently, think differently, and have people who work for you that have different lenses and experiences that help kind of shake up the status quo. Interesting. Interesting. So would internships count? Like, would you guys be looking at internships, even if it were in a different sort of uh, area than, than you traditionally recruit from? Or employers in general? You know, I can't. I can't speak to Deloitte's recruiting policies because that's not the function that I work in. But I think um, what I can speak is like the, you know, colleagues and network that I have, those internships and experiences are kind of cut across the board, especially when you're younger in your career. Um, I have a multitude of um, colleagues and, um, and peers who came through um, Teach for America, who did Fulbright scholarships who left um, school and took a year uh, took a year off and worked in um, kind of different uh, different capacities in areas of interest and passion um, that helped them kind of come back with a clearer set of uh, like values for where they wanted to focus their career and also a, a much better story um, around their ability to kind of operate independently and um, navigate on certain circumstances and build something on their own. So there's not really like a hard and fast answer, but I think the biggest thing is that there's no longer a prescription or a specific pathway to do this. And it's becoming increasingly important to really get back to 
what developed me as like a good human being and helped me better understand like what are my strengths? What what matters to me? What do I really value? How do I invest in that um, and lead with that and then use that as a way to market myself to employers who share that similar set of um, of values? Yeah. So so having the insight into your own values, your own interests, and then not looking for a job with just anybody, but looking for a job that's aligned with that so that you're not trying to kind of, um, I'm sure there's some analogy about selling something to somebody who doesn't need it that I could use if I knew it. But, you know, so you're not trying to fit yourself in a square peg or whatever that is, that you're, you're really able to make that connection. Yep, absolutely. And then I will say too, and this is going to be very pragmatic, but I would be remiss without saying it. I think that if you are coming into the workforce as a 22 year old, any organization is looking at does this person have the ability to work? Are they eager to learn? Can, are they coachable? Um, are they are they smart? Are they um, passionate? Are they a good um, a good person that can build solid relationships that others want to work with? Like just kind of thinking about the the first level of uh, inquiry that a recruiter would have on a 22 year old is um, it's really important, and I think that it certainly helps to be able to demonstrate how you've been able to really apply what you've learned in your life today to add value to another entity or another organization. And also think about how do I get my foot in the door at an organization that maybe is aspirational for me and I really want to figure out how to build my network there and get involved but and position myself for employment. And I think getting creative on like, what are those organizations already investing in, in their corporate social responsibility? And how do I start to think about, you know, building network and connection by volunteering and adding value through some of those channels or positioning myself for internships and, and figuring out a way to demonstrate your ability to work, your eagerness to learn and, um, and, and build some of those connections where, wherever you are at in your kind of education journey. Interesting. And all of those you were talking about, you know, many of the words you were using were to me what I think of as sort of human skills you know again Mm -hmm. this insight and this uh values and all of these different words that have to do with that process are all very human in in nature and can't be replaced by technology that's exactly right so I was also wondering, this is a little bit off topic, but I'm really interested in it. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, Growth Incorporated. Yes, I am happy to do that. And I, by the way, I successfully um, made it back into my office. So oh, thanks awesome. for, for bearing with me. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, Growth Inc., I started at the end of a six-month sabbatical that I took with Deloitte. And the high-level story is that, you know, I had such a great experience at Deloitte, but always felt like I had this enormous amount of pressure to fit a mold and be this serious consultant in an Ann Taylor suit who (laughs) used words like leverage and felt like that wasn't a sustainable way to grow my career because so much of what made me me, all the best parts of myself, my creativity and my humor, I felt like didn't have a place at my organization. And I felt this and was studying all of the future of work topics I mentioned and feeling like I was a hypocrite because I was talking at conferences and advising clients about the importance of creativity and authenticity and vulnerability and all of these skills that we talked about. And meanwhile, feeling like I was hiding a big piece of who I was in order to be successful. 
So I took this um, six-month sabbatical, um, thought this was a me thing, a me problem, and I was going to, you know, really kind of give myself some space to think about what was next for me and also study where our organization is kind of more meaningfully tapping into these set of um, social and emotional skills and how might we, you know, learn from that. And I started the sabbatical in January of 2020, came back uh, six months later, and the world had changed and um, had created this appetite, I think, at Deloitte to think a little bit differently about it. And so I came back and, you know, shared my story, like, here's how I felt. And if I feel this as a super privileged white woman who's been very well supported in my career, we've got a much bigger problem to solve for. And so um, in tandem with having that conversation, which I thought would get me fired, but instead it like totally transformed (laughs) my career at Deloitte. um, I I decided what can I do about this um, at the individual level and really honed in on the need for the, the, the experience that I had as a woman and recognizing that it wasn't a few thing. As I told that story, um, I, I had an overwhelming response from other women who resonated with it and felt the same way. And I did a bunch of research and learned a few things about the experience of women in um, professional environments that are more traditionally male dominated. And one of the things I learned was that women uh, on average reach peak confidence in life at age nine. Oh, and yeah. even though they represent the majority of college graduates, they lose um, they lose some of that ambition to reach the highest levels of leadership within the first couple of years on the job. And that something was happening to women's confidence that um, was palpable and I think was, you know, working in a broader, broader environment where there's certainly systemic changes that need to take place. How do I improve the agency of women to change their lives and change their outcomes? And I decided to really go deep on confidence and and then launched Growth Inc. as a way to help professional women rebuild the mental habits of confidence. I learned there's actually six habits that mental, specific mental habits that most women do not have because we're socially conditioned to think differently and rebuild those habits so that they can be leaders of their lives and their careers and kind of change the outcomes around them instead of changing, instead of waiting for the world to change around us. That's so cool. And so you really, I mean, everything we're just talking about up to this point, that's how you've been living your life for the last two years. You've been looking at your own values and how things are aligned with that and how you can align your life with your values professionally and otherwise. That's a hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Just out of curiosity, can you take off the six habits? Yeah. So, um, the first habit is, um, the habit of self-awareness and that actually, when we talk about values, like who am I and what do I value? What gives me energy? what drains my energy is, mm-hmm. um, is really, really important. And then there's the habit of self-acceptance, which is like understanding kind of the nuances of who you are and like accepting that and accepting um, your worth and, and allowing yourself to be enough and um, instead of kind of comparing and, and looking elsewhere. And then there's the habit of self-assertiveness, which is really the ability to articulate what matters to you, what your boundaries are, how do you um, how do you push back and say no in the right circumstances and, and situations? I'm going to have to pull up my, like, I, I'm going out of order, but um, the uh, habits actually have, like, really specific names that is based on the research of Nathaniel Brandon. I'm not sure if you've, you've heard of him, but he um, studied the mental habits of achievers and highly confident people and re- recognized that, like, we think about confidence as this kind of innate set of kind of personality traits but in reality it is like they're like mental processes that we just you know aren't necessarily 
taught and are kind of counterintuitive in our society. So I mentioned like the first three, but the habit of living consciously is, um, is a fourth one that is all about focusing on the reality of the moment and releasing fear. Um, and when you think about, we spend so much time ruminating on the past or dwelling in the future, which creates fear because we don't have control. So how do you start to live more in the moment and practice mindfulness? And then the habit of living purposefully, which is really that idea of having intentionality to the way that you show up to orient around kind of the set of values that you've got and orient around kind of the purpose of what you're doing um, day in and day out and having that sense of purpose. And then the last one, which totally resonates with my story is the habit of living with integrity, which is that who I am on the inside is, re- is reflected in the version of myself that I show to the world and like operating with this integrity of like who you are and what you value and, and what's important to you and not feeling like you have to apologize for kind of your identity, your background, your experiences, but using that as really a way to like show up um, in life um, as like an integrated person. That's so cool. I have to tell you, as a woman, as a mother of a teenage daughter, as a former psychotherapist, I, I love all of what you said so much. It's this, And I really, I hope if there's like a website or anything, if you could send that to us so we could put it on our show notes, I'm sure other people would be interested in that as well. Yeah, of course. I'll give my, our Instagram uh, handle is at Growth Incubator and has tons of free content. If you're interested in those topic areas, I'll send the website as well. Awesome. What a surprise, a little, little nugget at the end of this conversation. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Oh, I really appreciate you talking to us today about all of this. It's great to have a better understanding of kind of what the world looks like now in terms of employability and how students can look for organizations that are really aligned with their values, with their personality, with their goals, and not have to kind of be something that they're not. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, so uh, appreciate the opportunity to chat. And um, of course, if there's questions or, you know, people want more information, uh, feel free to reach back out. Thanks so much, Kelly. Good news. We have put our next two sessions of the On Your Mark Masterclass on the calendar, and this month's special offers 75% off. This class is one of our most popular offerings. It's a six-week class for the students themselves where through video lessons, assignments, and live group calls, they're guided through the process of finding the schools and programs in Europe that best fit their interests, their goals, their preferences, their qualifications, their budget, all of that. It's especially powerful because they are the ones taking the reins of the process as opposed to the parents, and they become the experts. The other cool thing is that they're taking this class with a group of students from around the country who are also exploring these outside-of-the-box options. And since they probably don't know anyone from their school or community looking outside of the U.S., having this community is really incredible. In fact, two of our members who took this class a few years ago are now sharing an apartment in Europe. We have a summer session in June and a fall session in October, and we'll put the full information, the link for the full information, dates, times, other logistics, in our show notes, or you can go to beyondthestates.com slash monthly special.